Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 12 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Thursday, April the 18th. First, I have a terrific interview with Jane Robbins, a buyer's agent for the informedbuyer.com.au, giving insights into what investors need to do when buying into the Australian property market. And... I'll have a great chat with AMP Capital Economist Shane Oliver. But now, let's talk to Jane Robbins. Jane Robbins, you set up the company informedbuyer.com.au, which is basically a buyer's agency in the market that's been booming, the Australian property market. Uh, it's been going downhill lately. Uh, what's uh, What would you, your advice be for buyers? Um, my advice would be um, to look at the micro levels underlying the macro numbers that the media like to talk about. So overall, yes, we are seeing a downturn, especially in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, But I still think that there are markets that are performing um, and that's getting down into the finer details behind that overall number. If you look at sort of more houses versus units and then down to the different suburbs, um, you will find that there are still markets that are performing well. Even in uh, Melbourne and Sydney? Uh, I operate here in Brisbane, 
but I think I have looked into a couple of the suburbs in Sydney that are still performing well, yes. But, I mean, you would really have to be across that information. Yeah, I think that um, knowing the detail comes down to specialists in the area that they sort of look into because there's many things that need to be considered and even within looking at, like, an overall performance of a suburb, there's still going to be pockets of that suburb that are more... Um, outperforming other areas of the even the same suburb itself. How does the buyer go about it? I think knowing the market really well. So it depends whether you're looking, I suppose, as an owner-occupier or an investor. And if you're an investor, what your long-term property goals are, um, whether that's either capital or your yield that you're looking for. So the yield is obviously the revenue you get and mm-hmm. capital is the capital appreciation you get from the property. Can you have both? Um, I think everyone would like to have both and there's possibly times where you can have both, but I think um, having that individual gold initially is where you want to start. I think for investors, having that long-term strategy in place and then also um, understanding their own individual risk profiles. And I think once we're talking about risk profiles, that's even helpful for an owner-occupier who is looking um, because, you know, some people find auctions too risky. They would rather have clauses in the contract to protect themselves. Um, so understanding your own risk um, before you sort of go looking at individual properties. Um, and I think also for investors out there, understanding their target market. So just like any good business decisions, understanding what potential um future renters would be looking for in your property and making sure that you're buying a property that fills those sort of needs. So an example of that is if you are wanting um, to buy a family home and showing that the schools in that area and that you are in the right school catchment um, and looking into that sort of thing to ensure you have long-term tenants in a property. So if you were looking at family homes, you would have to be, or or families as a market, you would have to be very much across the schools in the area? Yeah, look, I feel really strongly about that. And I think if you look at property markets around the world and where things have been really strong, schools, um, school catchment zones are one of the drivers of those um, family homes because at the end of the day, People want their children educated well, and if that's renting or buying into a school catchment, then that seems to be a trend that um, seems to have longevity. And, yeah, to look into those schools, it does take someone who's very familiar with the areas to know exactly what's happening there, Um, even though there are some things online now available to look into it as well. Uh, What about if you're looking for professionals as a market? Yeah, so I think um, the other thing that seems to always um, hold strong in the weaker markets are commute times and that accessibility to the city for professionals. So I think that you would look into um, like what type of professionals are currently there, how easy is it for for them to access the city or their workplaces um, and make sure before buying into a, um, a certain area that that sort of is upheld as well. Uh, one, of the big, one of the big issues, though, at the moment is that the banks are holding back on lending for property. All, all of those figures show up in uh, things like corporate uh, uh, finance for property buying. What do you have to do as an investor? Does that mean you have to be really across your accounts at the moment? Uh, so I think the investment lending towards the end of 2018 were a lot tighter. Some of the banks have... Um, sort of 
eased their lending criteria on investors earlier this year. But I think, um, yeah, to go down that track, you would want to have a really good um, your numbers in order. You would want to know what you can afford to spend um, and also run some scenarios on different, like if things change in terms of interest rates or if there was more of a supply of those types of housings and you had to take a hit on your rental um, that you were charging, you've got to run the scenarios and ensure that it's affordable um, if things do change in the market. Yeah, so that would be my thoughts around that. I mean, the banks are much more uh, cognizant these days, aren't they, of accounts? Yes, they're definitely... Um, it's no longer just a budget that you provide them. They'll actually go and look um, across your history for the last, you know, three to six months and ensure what you're saying you're spending is actually what you're spending your money on. Right. Okay. So, I mean, in view of the way the Australian property market is happening, are, are there are there opportunities out there still? Yeah, I think there's um, opportunities out there, um, mainly looking into that um, like the fundamentals of the areas that still are performing and then looking for other areas that have similar sort of traits. I think that there's um, great opportunities there for people. Uh, opportunities in what sort of areas, for example? Could you give some examples of that? Um, I think that if you look into some maps and things of average, medium prices and that and work out what suburbs um, are closer in that have those sort of commute times and good schools and find areas that have got higher average or medium prices, you know, maybe further out. Those are the areas that are sort of on the growth. So when we look at um, articles in the media and data around like these are the top 10 growth suburbs, I think it's too late for most of those. I think what you need to be doing is looking at the, you know, the other 20 to 30 growth suburbs and see which ones are moving up and those sort of things would be my tip there. I mean, you, you've studied... Um... Uh, property markets overseas as well, and uh, so are these true? Do these truisms hold for other property markets elsewhere? Uh, so yeah, I do keep an eye on um, parts of different cities in the world, um, and I think that the school catchment thing is definitely um, what does hold up, I, and that commute and easy access to the CBD areas. So, uh, so what are the what are the other trends we should be watching out for in the property markets? So I think if you're look if you're sort of looking for trends and things look for what your um, what potential renters would want in the properties. Um, and even if you're looking at purchasing a property as an investment, you could call um, some of the other rental agents, like look at what's been renting and call the property managers and ask them how much, you know, how many interested parties did you have in that property? How quickly did you rent it out? Um, I think that that's a really good way to work out what is popular in the area. Right, okay. And you would have to, and surely you would have to do things like compile a list of what all the properties are renting for in, the, in an area. Yeah, so that would be my other tip. Um, quite often a sales agent at an open home has what the property would rent for. I would um, definitely get a second opinion if I was to purchase that property from an external party around what the rental would be weekly on that property. And then I would be looking at what was currently renting and how quickly it did um, find someone to rent it. That takes a lot of lot of research if you're moving in as a property investor, doesn't it? Yeah, look, and I think we all know, like we all live in our own suburbs and we all know um, which streets in that suburb outperform other streets. And if you start to think about, well, why is that? Um, you might find that some streets in that suburb are a rat run. That's known to locals. 
and the suburb and the streets that aren't, um, you know, are those ones that are normally a little bit higher on the hill, get the breezes and things like that. So I think that there's a lot of um, detail in um, property and understanding it well takes um, a lot of time. Well, Jane Robbins, that's been fascinating and thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist, Shane Oliver. Uh, Shane Oliver, markets are pricing in at least one interest rate cut of 25 basis points in Australia this year to account for a softening economy and weakening house prices. And uh, investors are grappling with the idea that lower rates will lead to another leg of gains in the equity bull market. And indeed, uh, equity markets around the globe have rallied strongly in the first quarter of 2019 uh, with the uh, dovish turn of many of the world's central banks. So how, how would a rate cut affect markets? I guess you could argue at this point in time, one is already factored in. So if it occurred, you know, you, you always there's risk of, of uh, we've had the, the rally, markets have rallied, we might have a sell on the fact. I, I guess it depends the context around the rate cut, though. If, if the rate cut occurred later in the year and the Reserve Bank's left it too late and economic activity is rapidly deteriorating, then the market might say, well, that's not enough, we'll actually need more. If it occurs relatively early, the market concludes that, the Reserve Bank is is staying on top of things, then you might see a more positive reaction. But at this stage, it's a bit ambiguous as to whether it would be a, a positive or a negative. I, th- I think the key, though, is that, uh, as you say, a bit, uh, you know, it's largely factored in, so it wouldn't be a surprise for the market. But certainly lower interest rates do provide support. We've got a situation at present where uh, whether it's bank term deposit rates around 2% or whether it's the 10-year bond yield at 1.9%, uh, shares are providing a much higher yield than fixed interest and cash and and uh, and bonds are. So consequently, it, there is this inducement to put money into the share market to get that yield pick up. So, I mean, but as a rule, uh, equity markets tend to perform well when interest rates fall, don't they? They tend to. It um, they, they do provide a clear support for them. But there have been periods when you're looking at, say, uh, go back to 2008, Interest rates in Australia and the US started to fall from around August, September of 2008, and yet share markets ultimately didn't bottom until March of 2009. So there can be that initial period when interest rates are coming down in the midst of a crisis or a major bear market where it doesn't help uh, the market. You might get (coughs) brief rallies in shares, um, but it usually takes a while for the interest rates to interest rate cuts to take hold, stimulate growth, and then the market starts to rally as rates stay low or keep falling and as growth picks up. But in this environment, fortunately, we're not facing that. Um, But as a general rule of thumb, yes, you're right, except in the circumstance where you go into a major crisis, lower interest rates would be good news for the market. On the other hand, if interest rates are falling because of a weaker economic outlook, that would put pressure on earnings and that would affect equity. Yeah, that, that's why in times of crisis, it's not so good. <laughs> if you go back to uh, 2008, we saw that through that latter part of 2008. The interest rates peaked in the US in August of 2008, started to come down. In Australia, they started to come down from September 2008. Um, but, yeah, that was in the context of weakening economic conditions, weakening profit expectations, and therefore, it took a while before the lower interest rates started to have a beneficial impact on the share market. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what sectors would actually benefit from um, uh, cutting interest rates? Well, sectors that normally benefit are the interest rate sensitive sectors. Uh, obviously, uh, what we call high yield sectors will benefit. Uh, for example, telcos, utilities, real estate investment trusts, 
uh, they benefit because investors say well, they tend to be sectors of the market where a big chunk of the return comes from the dividend yield they pay or the distribution yield they pay in the case of real estate investment trusts. So consequently, as interest rates go down, investors say, well, okay, I can now get, uh, you know, I'm getting 5% from my real estate investment trusts. They're actually becoming more attractive relative to what I can get on bank deposits. So they tend to benefit um, almost directly from lower interest rates. They just they just become more attractive. Then eventually, as lower interest rates are felt to stimulate the economy, then that helps the more cyclical parts of the market, uh, such as consumer discretionary stocks, industrials, and so on, and and some of the building yeah, building materials, for example. But it usually takes a while longer for that to flow through. But the initial beneficiaries are the high yield parts of the market that just benefit because they they become more attractive in a relative sense. I'd imagine infrastructure companies with large amounts of debt and high visibility on cash flows would also benefit when interest rates. Yeah, that, uh, that, yeah, that's. I'm thinking of them as utilities. So they're in that group as well. So the key beneficiaries would be real estate investment trusts, utilities, which where you'd include infrastructure companies, power companies, you know, companies that uh, own airports and and uh, toll roads and so on. Um, and of course, um, um, telcos tend to have relatively high yields as well. So it's that yield sensitivity which um, attracts money into that part of the market. And uh, yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. And uh, and of course, as you, as you pointed out, it would also uh, support companies exposed to retail sales, wouldn't it? Over time, it does. Uh, as interest rates come down, there's uh, and the, the cyclical environment in the economy starts to improve, uh, retailing would eventually pick up, in theory, anyway. And uh, that that helps uh, retailing stocks, you know, what what we call consumer discretionary stocks in particular, and also um, more cyclical sectors in the market like industrials uh, and um, building materials. But it takes a while for that to flow through. And of course, in Australia's case, you know, you can sort of debate the extent to which that will help because we haven't really had an interest rate tightening cycle yet. We're still we're still going through the last easing cycle that started way back in 2011. Um, so lower interest rates would really just be a continuation of that. And I think ultimately we'd just help support economic growth in Australia. I don't think they'd necessarily cause a renewed uh, a renewed spurt in growth. And uh, companies that earn profits offshore could also benefit, wouldn't they, if lower interest rates drive down the value of the Australian dollar? That's true. As uh, interest rates go down in Australia relative to those in the US, um, and we've seen that a, a bit in recent years with the Fed raising rates and the RBA not, or in some cases cutting, as we saw in 2016, that, that can put downwards pressure on the Aussie dollar. And, of course, in turn, that benefits what, what's called offshore earners, companies that have big exposure offshore. It also benefits, and that, that could include companies like, say, Treasury Wine Estates, just, you know, or a, uh, a Brambles, for example. Um, but it could also include mining companies as um, the Australian dollar goes down. Most of the commodities that Australian, Australian companies produce are, are priced in US dollars, so the US dollar value stays where it is. But the... the um, Australian dollar value goes up. And so that's good news for the big miners. But uh, we have to look at the weakest link in Australia. I mean, in Australia, it's housing. I mean, in the US, is obviously the finance sector. But uh, would a moderate decline in the housing market uh, do anything from the ASX from heading higher or not? It's, it's already been a bit of a constraint because house prices in Australia from their high point in 2017 have already fallen 9%, obviously a bit more in Sydney, Melbourne, uh, or Sydney and Perth and Darwin, but um, a bit less than the others. And some of them haven't come down at all. Um, so 
So prices have already come down 9% from their high points, and that has been a drag on some sectors. Uh, obviously, companies that are directly exposed to the housing cycle have been affected. Um, it has been a little bit of a drag on the banks, and arguably it's been a bit of a, bit of a drag on some retailers. If, as we go through time, that housing downturn continues, I think we're already partway through. Our view has been that top-to-bottom prices would fall nationwide by 15%, a bit more in Sydney, obviously, in Melbourne, but 15% nationwide. If we're already down by 9%, we're, we're uh, um, only got a bit to go. Now, we've probably got another 6% to go in terms of downside. So that that's obviously an ongoing drag. The housing cycle downturn will be an ongoing drag on the economy. And therefore, if the Reserve Bank is to cut interest rates, which we think they will, then that will provide a bit of an offset to that. But that housing downturn probably still has further to go in terms of its flow through to the economy. Um, and that will unfold through time. And therefore, lower interest rates would provide a bit of an offset to that. So final question, Shane. I mean, how many rate cuts do you expect the RBA to bring in? Well, we're looking for two rate cuts. Uh and they're probably still a little way off. We did go through a run of weaker economic data basically since Christmas up until about a month ago. Since then, the data has been a little bit stronger and the Reserve Bank has continued to express some optimism about growth eventually picking up and the labour market holding things up. And we've also got a bit of stimulus coming from the budget. Not a huge amount, but $1,080 in terms of tax refunds coming through in the next few months will certainly help low to, low to middle income earners. Um, so, so for those reasons and the uncertainty around the election, I think you know, we're probably not going to see a rut cut in May. We were thinking maybe June, but that could be pushed out a little bit. But bottom line is we, we, we're looking for two rate cuts in, in the second half of this year or, or sometime in the months ahead. Um, we had earlier penciled in August um, as the first rate cut, but that could come, as I was saying, June, July or, or that period as well. Um, the next one would probably be around November. Um, but two rate cuts, that would ultimately take the official cash rate down to 1% from currently 1.5%. And I think ultimately that combined with a bit of fiscal stimulus, which looks like we're going to see whoever wins the election, uh, combined with strength and infrastructure spending, uh, the mining investment slump now bottoming out, so the big drag from that source on the economy that is, is coming to an end. Non-mining investment is looking a little bit healthier, and Chinese growth looks like it's picking up, and that should be good for our export earnings. So there are some offsets which will keep the economy going, and lower interest rates will be part of that. So I don't think uh, uh, people should get worried about a recession in Australia. I think that's that's still unlikely, given that there are some key areas of support for the economy. Well, Shane Oliver, it's always a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for your time and thank you very much for your insights. Thank you, Leon. It's been great speaking to you. So what's happening in the news? Well, global finance chiefs entered talks in Washington, mixing concern toward the current state of the world economy with confidence that it will soon rebound. The shift away from tighter monetary policy by central banks, recent stimulus in China and easing trade tensions were hailed as reasons to hope that the slowdown will prove short-lived although nobody forecast a renewed boom. With stocks already rallying on optimism about the outlook, officials at the International Monetary Fund's spring meeting said growth is set to firm up. IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde nevertheless warned the world is at a delicate moment and at risk of self-inflicted wounds. The IMF cut its forecast for global expansion to the slowest pace since the financial crisis a decade ago, but played down the risk of recession and predicted growth will pick up in the second half of the year 
to stabilise at about 3.6% in 2020. That would be an improvement over the 3.3% pace projected for this year, but below the 3.8% of 2017. US Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin stoked optimism by saying he was hopeful the US and China are close to the final round of trade talks. UK Chancellor of the Exchequer Philip Hammond said the government and main opposition party could strike a Brexit deal within weeks. And a worldwide increase in natural catastrophes is already hitting global supply chains and causing a spike in business interruption insurance claims. A senior executive with Allianz Global Corporate and Specialty has warned. AGS Chief Regions and Market Officer Shanord Brown said this trend, which he directly linked to climate change, was pushing premiums up around the world, adding this correction was likely to continue for the next few years. While property damage is the most obvious effect of extreme weather events, Ms Brown said business interruption resulting from these events was proving costlier, claim for claim, than property damage. And Reserve Bank of Australia minutes revealed board members think an interest rate cut could be appropriate if unemployment rises and inflation remains weak. The RBA appears less confident about the jobs market, noting mixed indicators. The minutes of the April board meeting, which saw the central bank's board leave rates unchanged for a record 29th consecutive meeting, show a discussion of what it could take for the RBA to cut the cash rate. However, the RBA board did not appear in any rush, agreeing there was not a strong case for any near-term move. And doubts about the election promises made by the Coalition and Labor have been raised with new predictions that the Australian economy is softening on the back of falling house prices and stagnant wages. Ahead of a warning from Shadow Treasurer Chris Bowen that the Coalition's tax cut plans could drive the budget into the red if the economy weakened, Forecasts from Deloitte Access Economics point to budget problems that may curtail expensive vote winners. The Coalition is promising $290 billion in personal income tax cuts between 2020 and 2029, even after it was forced to write down expected revenue by $15 billion in its recent budget. Labor, opposed to key elements of the Coalition's tax plans, hopes to raise billions from a string of measures including changes to negative gearing, franking credits and capital gains tax. But both are likely to run into an economy that will fail to grow at its long-term trend rate, Deloitte has warned in its latest outlook. Deloitte director Chris Richardson said local and global factors were playing into a slowdown that would continue this year and into 2020. Labor's bigger tax rises and the coalitions would carve a third of economic growth, Deloitte Access says. Deloitte, however, said that the loss to prosperity from Labor's higher taxes would also come with some offsetting benefits. And the Morrison government would need to cut spending by about $40 billion a year by 2030 to avoid its big personal income tax and deliver on its budget surplus forecasts, new analysis by the Grattan Institute shows. The coalition has positioned its $387 billion in lower taxes and labour over the next decade as a key economic fight in the federal election, including an extra $230 billion in personal income tax that labour is resisting. And as both parties go into the election campaign, The key difference is the Coalition sees the Royal Commission and its recommendations as the end process of bank reforms, while Labor sees it as the beginning. This is highlighted in a report released on April 8th by a Senate's committee into the resolution of disputes with financial service providers within the justice system. The inquiry was held to investigate whether financial institutions use the legal system to bully customers into accepting settlements and whether the asymmetry of power has been abused. It made a series of recommendations, including the introduction of an industry levy, bankrolled by listed financial services companies to fund legal assistance and financial counselling for consumers and small businesses that don't have the resources to fund the legal action. 
The report also called on the government to improve access to legal assistance services for small businesses. Other reforms included increasing the current compensation cap available to consumers through the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, the external dispute resolution body, to $2 million, including for credit, insurance and financial advice disputes, and setting up a retrospective compensation scheme independent of AFCA to allow victims of bank misconduct who receive a past external dispute resolution determination or court judgment to have the matter reviewed if they believed it was unjust. Labor backs all the reforms. Indeed, well before the report was released, Labor has pledged a $640 million banking fairness fund through a levy paid by financial institutions among Australia's top 100 listed companies. The levy would target nine institutions, including the big four banks and AMP, and the size of the levy would be linked to their market capitalisation. It said $320 million would be used to double the number of taxpayer-funded financial counsellors from 500 to 1,000 to give free advice and advocacy to an extra 125,000 people a year and increase the number of free financial rights lawyers from 40 to 240. A dissenting report was included in the Senate report where coalition members rejected certain recommendations, including not supporting additional resourcing for community legal services and financial counsellors on the basis that believed the industry already pays for AFCA. It said, Coalition members of the committee are satisfied that the financial sector contributes substantially to the cost of dispute resolution through membership of AFCA. It said any further contributions would require careful consideration. It said coalition members of the committee also note the recommendation was vague. The coalition members said a recommendation to increase AFCA's cap on compensation to $2 million and review it now was premature and unnecessary as AFCA has been in place since November 2018 and the government had announced the review would take place 18 months from that time. The coalition members slammed as convoluted and ambiguous the recommendation for a compensation scheme of last resort independent of AFCA. And when it comes to whistleblowers, there are also noticeable differences. Labor has promised a suite of reforms to whistleblower protections if it wins office, including introducing a United States-style whistleblower reward system. Other reforms include a protection authority, the appointment of a special prosecutor to go after corporate crooks, and an overhaul of the current whistleblower laws into a single act. And despite a recovery in the March quarter, superannuation funds are heading for a disappointing 2018-19 financial year. With global growth challenges and a loss of market momentum, meaning funds will struggle to make up for sharp losses in the December quarter. According to estimates from leading superannuation research house Super Ratings, balanced option returns were largely flat through March as markets were weighed down by weaker economic data and fears of further falls in home prices. The typical balanced option, defined as an option holding between 60 to 76% of growth assets, returned an estimated 0.8% in March as the share market recovery came to a halt. The typical growth option also grew at 0.8% following strong gains in January and February of 3.2% and 3.4% respectively. And Moody's Investors Service says that housing affordability for new mortgage borrowers in Australia, which improved over the year to March 2019, will continue to improve over the next 12 months because of declining house prices. More affordable housing reduces the credit risks of newly originated mortgages, which is positive for new residential mortgage-backed securities backed by such loans. Moreover, Moody's expects housing prices to continue to fall moderately over the next year due to reduced credit supply by the banking sector, and incomes are also rising, and these two factors are in turn driving further improvements in affordability. The proportion of household income needed to meet repayments on new Australian mortgages, Moody's measure of housing affordability, declined to an average 26.5% in March 2019, from 28.7% a year earlier. In terms of specific 
median house price sales fell by 6.5% over the year to March 2019, while incomes increased an average of 2.8%. At the same time, average mortgage interest rates rose slightly to 5.4% in March 2019 from 5.2% a year earlier, but the effects of this were far outweighed by declining house prices and rising incomes. Housing affordability improved in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth over the year to March 2019, with the biggest improvement in affordability in Sydney, where prices declined 10.7% over the year to March. However, affordability deteriorated in Adelaide. An embattled company, Freedom Insurance, has reached an in-principle deal to sell its policy administration business for $5 million. The Banking Royal Commission strongly criticised the company for its unethical sales culture, its shares are worth almost nothing and have been suspended by the ASX. Freedom Insurance came under intense criticism at the Banking Royal Commission for its high-pressure sales tactics, which has effectively destroyed its business model. In a statement to the ASX, the company indicated that the price would have been higher had it not been for clawbacks of trail commissions and remediation of customers who may have suffered financial detriment. However, Freedom Insurance would not reveal who the buyer was due to confidentiality reasons. The company also said there were plans to sell its Spectrum Wealth Management business, after which it will have exited all its operating businesses. Furthermore, it said the funds would be used to pay creditors, wind down its remaining operations, and meet any financial regulatory obligations. And if there are any excess funds, they would be returned to shareholders. Mining giant Rio Tinto has reported a 14% drop in quarterly iron ore shipments and cut its 2019 shipments estimates on disruption caused by a tropical cyclone which hit its export terminal in Western Australia last month. Rio, the world's number two miner of the steelmaking material, cut its annual iron ore shipments estimate to a range of 333 million to 343 million, from a range of 338 million to 350 million tonnes announced earlier. Rio shipped 69.1 million tonnes in the quarter ended March 31, down from 80.3 million tonnes last year and well below the Goldman Sachs estimate of 74.7 million tonnes. Cyclone Veronica disrupted ports used by miners Rio and BHP Group in late March. Rio earlier flagged a loss of 14 million tonnes of production in 2019 due to disruption caused by the tropical cyclone and a fire at a port facility in January. An aged care provider, Bupa, has been hauled into court by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission for allegedly making false and misleading claims about the services it provides at nearly a quarter of its facilities. The ACCC alleges residents at 21 of Bupa's aged care facilities have been charged for services either never provided or only partially provided. The services were often valued at thousands of dollars a year. Bupa operates facilities in most states and houses more than 6,700 residents. The ACCC alleged Bupa aged care charged thousands of residents at 21 aged care homes across the country a fee for a package of extra and often expensive services that it did not provide or only partly provided. The allegations cover more than a decade between December 2007 and June 2018 and affect 21 of 74 aged care centres the large privately owned provider has run in Australia since 2007. The ACCC alleged the fees for the extra services and package often amount to thousands of dollars each year. An Australian wine company is helping to research grapes that can cope with climate change. Brown Brothers has supported the CSIRO research, which aims to develop new grape varieties that tolerate a hotter and drier environment by grafting prototype varieties onto existing mature vines and seeing how they cope. Brown Brothers Chief Executive Dean Carroll said the company had noticed its harvests were happening earlier thanks to hotter and drier weather. And Japanese giant Nippon Paint has made an agreed $3.8 billion takeover offer for Australia's biggest paintmaker, Dulux Group. 
The proposal is via a scheme of arrangement for $9.80 per share in cash of a f- inclusive of a 15 cent interim dividend to be paid by Dulux. Nippon Paints is based in Osaka, Japan and has 20,000 employees worldwide. Dulux has a workforce of 4,000 people and is headquartered in Melbourne. It became a separately listed entity on the ASX in 2010 after the business was demerged from explosives and chemicals group Orica. Nippon President and Chief Executive Tetsuchi Tado said the proposed buyout was an important step in the company's global growth ambitions. The company intends to run the Dulux business as a standalone operation and keep its name, with very little overlap in Australia. Dulux Managing Director Patrick Houlihan said the proposed transaction was an endorsement of a strong company which has been built and the success of a group since a demerger from Orica. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Fiona Reynolds, the CEO of PRI, the Principles of Responsible Investment. We'll be talking about what businesses should be doing about climate change. And I'll be interviewing economist Nicholas Green. And of course, I'll bring you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a happy Easter. Have a great week. Take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.